Well, listen, folks. Oh, I know what I want to do. Do you remember a while back we took up a special, we had a special project, baby bottle project, where we invited folks who wanted to participate to put coins or even paper money in these baby bottles to support the crisis pregnancy center, which is closest to us right here on Beamer. Well, uh, they tallied all that money. I'm not going away. I'm trying to get something here. And uh, <laughs> the uh, director of the place, oh, I just dropped something. I don't know what I did. Oh, here it is. Uh, the the di director of the place sent us this beautiful thank you note expressing great appreciation uh, for the gift. And from our three classes, the one that met before you, this one, the one that will meet after you, uh, the amount donated was $6,670.88, which is, I'll round it off to $6,700, which is no small potatoes. It's just our three classes. We don't do a, we try not to do an undue amount of special offerings, but that one has really grabbed us. We've done it uh, two years now in a row. We probably will continue to do it. And this lady well expresses how valuable was the gift at that time. They had many needs and expenses, and it really came in handy. So thanks for participating, uh, and we'll do it again next year. So that's pretty good, don't you think? $6,700 in baby bottles. Wonderful. Hey, from time to time, we want you to get a closer look at the people you're sitting next to. So I roped uh, some people into this, and they're so excited. So um, I'd like you to meet a little closer, uh, Brad and Christy Hardy. So can you guys join me over here right now? These are the Hardys, so please welcome them if you'd like to. The party's over, so we're going to get started in the text. As you know, we've been studying in 2 Samuel, and I hope you have found it to be helpful. It's stock full of good stuff. Last week, for instance, we discovered something called the Davidic Covenant, called that because God made it with David through an intermediary known as Nathan, and the provisions of the covenant were overwhelming to David, land, for he and his ancestors, permanent dynasty, and a descendant of David perpetually on the throne. Of course, the ultimate descendant of David, whose rule is eternal, is who? Yes, the Lord Jesus, who is identified in the New Testament, interestingly, as a son of David. So that's what we read about last week. It was largely theological. This week, we'll read about David's response to it all. So this gets personal. And we'll pick up the action in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. Verse 18, we'll see what David had to say about what God had to say. Verse 18, then David, the king, went in and sat before the Lord. You know what he did, folks? He went to pray. He went in, it says. Would you like to guess where did he go into? Into what? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Yes, Ryan, you are correct. He went into the tabernacle. Remember, that was a tent 
kind of a mobile thing that served Israel's purposes for 40 years in the wilderness. God chose to establish his presence in a way I don't fully understand in that mobile tabernacle. It housed the Ark of the Covenant. There it is now in Jerusalem. And David, in response to the covenant promises God made to him, Uh, This is what he does. He goes into the tabernacle and he sat before the Lord and he said, this is how his prayer time began. He said, who am I, O Lord uh, God, and um, what is my house that you have brought me this far? Look, God promised David and his people a land and a dynasty and a throne and all the rest. And Uh, David is now a little overwhelmed by the unmerited blessings of it all. It humbles him. It brings him down. And he asks this piercing kind of rhetorical question, who am I? He's moved to sit still before God and reflect on it all. And, And so he goes into this tent, as Ryan correctly identified, the tabernacle where the ark of the Lord's presence was established and he humbly acknowledges the blessings and benefits bestowed upon him by the Lord and he sees these to be expressions of God's unmerited grace and favor and so you see the phrase David sat before the Lord that's rather unusual to my knowledge you won't see that description of a prayer posture anywhere else in the Old Testament the typical prayer posture in those days was actually to stand in prayer looking uh, aloft and sometimes with hands raised at other times prayers would fall on their face before almighty god but this sitting position is rather unusual and i wondered what's behind it so i looked up the hebrew word and it explained to me it doesn't actually mean sit in the sense of physical posture, that's not what's in view. It's not important what your physical posture is when you're praying to God. You can raise your hands in prayer. You can sit on your hands in prayer. It doesn't matter. There isn't a prescribed posture. The word here means to remain or to tarry. So what this means, and we get a glimpse of how David responded to God, he didn't rush through his prayer time. It was more than saying grace before you chow down over lunch or dinner. Nothing wrong with that. But this was a time of unrushed, undistracted, reflected, reflective prayer with God. David, a king, carved out time from his busy schedule just to stay put. He was not multitasking during this time. He was devoted to his private time with the Lord. He gave himself to it. That's what it means. He tarried before God and asked this piercing question, who am I? This he did, I think, in recognition of his lowliness. He knows where he came from. He was a lowly shepherd boy and uh, wasn't even highly thought of in that role by his brothers, you recall. They were older military men, and they saw him just to be a rather subservient little errand boy. And now David has been promoted to the level of king of Israel. He was a shepherd of sheep, and now God promoted him to be a shepherd of people, a unified nation, Israel, the northern tribes and southern tribes. And David 
cannot take a lick of credit for it all. He had no ambition to do this. He didn't orchestrate the events. And so he acknowledges this is all by God's doing. And so he asks this piercing question, who am I? It's not a bad way to pray and open yourself up to God, but you don't want to stay with this self uh, reflection too long. If you do, you'll get depressed. If you start thinking of yourself, your lonely lowliness and your worm-like character, and you have one, so do I, uh, it'll be disturbing to you. You want to think a little bit on this question, who am I? But then you want to move quickly past it as David did. Notice, who am I, O Lord God? And so he's moving himself now from morbid introspection, which will keep you depressed. And now he's being distracted by remembering who he's speaking to and in whose presence he is. Sometimes you don't get it because we rush through prayer too much and too many distractions. And that phrase, Lord God, really means Lord God Almighty. If you are bored with the lesson, I can see it on some of your faces. You can begin to keep you busy. We don't have coloring books, but I have something else. You can count the number of times in verses 18 to 29 when this phrase, Lord God, is repeated. In my translation, it's eight times. It becomes a theme in prayer. It ought to be for us as well. Whatever else is true of us and distressing, still remember in whose presence you are. You're in the presence of sovereign God, whose blessings are bestowed upon us freely according to his sovereign grace. David realized in staying with the question, who am I? No good thing dwelt in him. The good things God gave him and promised him could not be attributed to any righteousness or virtue in his life. And so he quickly moved past and remembered, yeah, but you're Lord God, you're sovereign. You can bestow good things on whomever you want for your own reasons. And so the text says, David went in, sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? Then he said, and what is my house? that you have brought me this far. It's a good kind of reflection to think back on your past and be amazed how the Lord has brought you to the present and through it all. David, we ought to think back on the pitfalls, the ups, the downs, the problems, the challenges, all the rest, even the sin that we've committed. David was no stranger to sin, as you know. And yet you look back on it and you say, and yet in spite of it, here I am. This is a good ingredient in prayer. To kind of go back in, in the past and bring yourself to the day and attribute it all to a faithful God. Especially when you're up against something you know not how to deal with. You get a cancer diagnosis or something like it happens to you. And you don't know how you're going to get through it. None of us would. It's really good to think back and remember you've been in dire straits before. How do you explain the fact that you have a present day viable experience? It's all due to almighty God. It has to be this way. 
And it isn't because, once again, of any good thing in you. If God redeemed us, he owns us and therefore has an interest in us, that's the assurance that he will not abandon us. He really intends to get glory through us, through even whatever may befall us. So David is thinking back and thinking, how, how, how have you brought us this far? And then he goes on in verse 19 to say, and yet this was insignificant in your eyes. <laughs> David is, is evaluating the past and present blessings and saying, and yet, in your eyes, God, all those things pale in comparison to what? O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. David is saying, I've seen your beneficent hand in my past and present. I've seen you bestow upon me helps and blessing I did not deserve but it pales in comparison to your promises to me with regard to my future. David is saying things may get worse before they get better, but the best is yet to come. And so as good as have been your blessings to me now, they're nothing. They're insignificant in comparison to the distant future. Now that's true of us as well, folks. This is a rough day in which to be alive. In fact, being alive is distasteful to a lot of us today. It's just that rough. I don't think there's cause to be ashamed of that. It's uncomfortable to be here, and we are uncomfortable, many of us, internally. There's no shame in that. It's rough to be here. It's a foreign place. We feel estranged from it, increasingly alienated from it, foreign to it. And I think the evil one is pulling out all the stops for crying out loud. All kinds of things are befalling God's people. It really weighs us down. And yet we have a future and a hope. The best is yet to come. I'm so glad that God has told us of the ultimate outcome of things in advance, lest we fall below the line of despair and think, will it always be this way for me? The answer is no, for he one day will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain or death. The first things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so David feasted on future promises here. Namely, he says, to provide the house of your servant concerning the distant Future, And then can you see this phrase at the end of verse 19? And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. What does that mean? Well, as is no surprise to you, various people have weighed in on it and given different opinions. I'd like to offer mine, which I think is the most accurate, but I'll leave it up to you. This is the custom of man, O Lord God. What is David saying? I think he's referring to the customs the laws of inheritance known to humankind, meaning when your heirs of someone bequeathing in advance something to you, perhaps stated in a will, there are laws surrounding all that. 
And it appears that God has condescended to such extent that he has obligated himself to the very inheritance and legal customs standard to humankind. The great beyond transcendent deity has essentially assured David, his descendants, and all of us who are part of the covenant with God, God has essentially said, as you have laws governing wills and inheritance and customs, so too I'm conforming myself to those standard procedures. And this covenant is sealed. It's a sealed testament. I am the signatory to it. In my own right mind, you can count on it. I think that's what's in view here. Now, verse 20, again, what more can David say to you? (laughs) He's reflecting on the goodness and greatness of God. He's in the tabernacle, no cell phones, emails, texts, and all the rest. He put his calls on hold, no distractions. Boy, we really have to discipline ourselves to get that way today four times alone with the Lord. While there, he's overcome by what God has done, is doing, and will do for one who, well, was uh, quite a sinful guy, sexually and in other ways. This is no, no choir boy. This is David, and he's overwhelmed by the sovereign grace of God on his behalf, And it kind of rendered him speechless. What more can David say to you? You run out of words to encapsulate the goodness and greatness of God. That's what he's saying. And then he adds this phrase, for for you know your servant, O Lord God. I think David is saying, you have bestowed and will bestow all these good things on me in full awareness of who I am. David is saying, you know what I do, you know what I say, you even know what I think, and yet you've entered into an unconditional covenant with me and my household, entirely unmerited and undeserved. You know about all the stuff in my life, David would say, things, thoughts I would not others would not want others to know about because if they did, they would reject me. But you know and have not rejected me. And it just rendered him speechless that God, in full knowledge of what David was made, still insisted on upholding the terms of the covenant. It's as if David is saying, you know me, yet you blessed me, and I'm going to simply accept this and rest in it. And the unmerited grace of God is the biggest problem we have, you and I, Christians. I think we really try to, in ways, we try to talk God out of it because we can't relate to grace. There's nothing else in the world that... uh, that is similar to it. See, in the world, you do this, I do that. You're nice to me, I'm nice to you. You go to work, I pay you a salary. See what I mean? But grace doesn't play by those rules whatsoever. Grace has nothing to do with what the recipient of it does or does not do. Now that, I don't get that. That is counterintuitive. And so I think the biggest hardship for those of us who receive the grace of salvation is to enjoy it. It's a rough deal. 
But I think David is simply saying, you can do whatever you want to do because you're the master. I'm the servant. In fact, in prayer, I think we are to remember that God is the master and we are the servant. So let me share this with you. It seems to me some prayers reverse this order. Some prayers seem to put us in the driver's seat. Uh, They seem to obligate God to do for us what we are willing to, have you heard this phrase, believe God for. And so our faith gets to be almost a force, a club we use to obligate God to give us what we want. So we say, God, I'm believing you for this. But that's not real faith. It isn't real faith when you are looking for from God a specific outcome. No, it's real faith when you trust in the goodness of God, even if you don't get the outcome you want. We pray for healing of those in our midst who are ill. We ought to. You might pray for that job position to which you have applied. But if you say, oh, God, I'm believing you for this healing and that job position, you may appear to be a faithful person, but you're really not. You've already defined for God what you want him to do for you. Real faith is to say, oh, God, I'd really like this job. Oh, God, I'd like to be free of this, or I'd like my loved one to be free of this illness or affliction. That's, of course, legitimate praying. But then you would want to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Uh, Someone greater than us prayed that very thing, didn't he, the Lord Jesus? He had a specific outcome in mind. Oh, God, let this cup. It was the destiny of crucifixion. Let this cup pass. He was no crazed martyr. He didn't desire crucifixion. Let this cup pass from me. But you know what he said next? Nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. So be careful about this movement of positive confession, which seems to obligate God to jump through your hoops when in fact he's the master, we are the servant. So I think the purpose of prayer is not to get our will uh, done. It is to invite God's will to be done. That's biblical faith. And so in David's prayer, I mentioned to you, we see the repetition of the phrase Lord God about eight times, and there's something else repeated. Your servant, that phrase is repeated 10 times. In my trend, you can count it again if you're bored and help yourself. So, so you see the frequent repetition of the phrase uh, Lord God juxtaposed with the even more frequent repetition of the phrase your servant. That's how it is when we pray. We humble ourselves to Almighty God. The purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we want him to do for us. It's to invite God because we trust him to do his will in accordance with his good purposes. So verse 21, David says, For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. David has given up on trying to unravel the puzzle of God's grace. Instead, he concludes, it's according to your own heart and for the sake of your word. Boom. That's what we should do. Instead of trying to find a reason wherein God 
bequeaths to you the salvation he will not withdraw. Instead of doing that, by finding some reason for it, well, I go on missions trips, even if when I don't want to. I let this Jewish guy humiliate me in an interview, and, you know, I do. I put money in the plate, whatever. Instead of looking for some cause-effect relationship, explaining God's incomprehensible grace, David resolved the whole issue by this. It's for the sake of your word and according to your own heart that you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. In other words, folks, David reflected on the attributes of God and rested in it. There is the sovereignty of God. He does what he wants to do and he gives what he wants to give to whom he wants to. And there is the goodness of God. Premier attributes. He is sovereign and good. And we are sandwiched in between those two. And we play a very small role (laughs) in receiving the good things God has chosen in his sovereignty and grace to bestow upon us. It's a puzzle. And we just have to stop and simply say, you don't do what's fair. You operate according to your sovereign grace. And I'm going to accept it, enjoy it, and respond accordingly. I think that's what David is doing. Now, verse 21, David says, For this reason you are great, O Lord God. What reason? What deity is there, even in our wildest imagination, who operates this way? There is no pretender to the throne who does. Allah is not the same as the God of the Bible. No pretender of the throne operates according to this kind of principle of grace. Every false deity has expectations of his or her followers that they must render in order to sustain his favor. But the God of the Bible says, I have chosen in my sovereignty and goodness to bestow my favor upon you in spite of you. As my covenant with David is unconditional, so my new covenant with you is unconditional. You will, um, your mind will blow up if you try to make sense of it. Better, let it lead you to do what David did, sing how great is our God. He's categorically different. In fact, David says, furthermore, in verse 22, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. God acts, David concluded, consistently and graciously on behalf of those who are his entirely apart from anything they have earned or merited or deserved. Now, I think, folks, that prayer, which is what we're speaking about, is diminished if it consists of requests only. What David did in tarrying before the Lord was to reflect not just on petition, but on praise. Praise is simply reflecting back to God who he is, his attributes, his characteristics, praise. We are prone to make prayer boring, unstimulating, recitation of a list of petitions. Now, there's nothing wrong with petitioning Almighty God for things we sorely need and want, but frankly, that should not be the 
principal purpose of prayer. It's simply, well, I, I like the phrase, it's to romance God. It's to tell him how you are aware of how good and great he is. That ought to take most of our prayer time. And I think David is discovering that here. In prayer, we ought to be absorbed, not with what we lack, but with the greatness and goodness of God. It's very interesting how in the process of doing that, what we lack doesn't loom quite as large. Now, David in verse 23 says something. Don't hate me for this. You're going to say, there goes the Jew boy stuck on Israel again. Well, the Jew boy is just reading verse 23. I didn't read it. Okay, I can't leave it out because that's not the way we treat the Bible. So verse 23 is about Israel. And I, I've i been told by some that I overdo it on Israel. Well, tell that to God. I didn't write verse 23. Look, and what one nation, this is what David says, what one nation on earth is like your people, and then it says right there, Israel, right? It doesn't say Russia, it doesn't say the United States. It says, what one nation on the earth is like your people, Israel? So if you're angry about can't you get off this topic, then you take your complaint to God. Whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their God. What God has done for David and his Jewish ancestors serves, according to verse 23, to make a name for himself. Can you see that phrase in verse 23? God's response, let me put it this way. God is glorified through his faithfulness towards Israel. David is recognizing this in prayer. Why? Israel is undeserving, that's why. Israel is unfaithful. God's faithful response to an unfaithful people brings glory, not to those people, but to Almighty God. In God's response to faithless Israel, we see an attribute and character of God that is, makes him worthy of praise. Who is a God like this? So David is saying God's response to Israel is the basis upon which he's making a name for himself, and this is why Jews have been and will be targeted by Satan. Now, look, you don't have to like Jews. I am not offended if you don't like gefilte fish, our sense of humor, whatever. You don't have to like the culture, no problem. But that's a far cry, dislike for people, groups, foods, and ways. That's a far cry from putting us into gas chambers. Uh, how do you make that jump? How does one of the most advanced societies, Nazi Germany on earth, brilliant industrialized Germany, stoop to this level? I have no beef with German people by no means. I was a missionary in Germany and loved German people, had a wonderful experience in Germany. The one I hate is Satan. It's not German, pe German people, except to the extent some allowed themselves to be used by Satan. You see, uh, Satan is aware of verses like verse 23 and that God will make a name for himself in his response to Jewish people. But if there are no Jewish people 
for God to respond to, then God will be robbed of glory. And this explains to me irrational things like the Holocaust and the rise of anti-Semitism again here in Europe in our day and what the Bible refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation period, which to my mind will make the Holocaust look like a walk in the park. Satan is, whatever else is true of him, he's not stupid and he's not biblically illiterate. He has found out that God, otherwise invisible, has chosen to manifest his grace by imposing his favor upon perhaps the most undeserving people group on earth, my people. I'm not singing the virtues of Jewish people. I'm singing the virtues of the God of the Bible who reveals his grace and mercy to us, not just in the words of scripture, but historically in his response to the Jewish people. Now, Satan knows this. Therefore, if he could eradicate the Jews, he could rob God of glory. And that's why there's such a target on Israel and the Jews and that goofball little sliver of real estate, not rich in natural resources at all. Why is there such an interest in it? I think the cosmic battle between Satan and Savior explains it all to me. Furthermore, verse 24, for you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Can you see the word forever? I hope you have it or something like it in your verse 24. Forever means forever. That's why this terrible theological perspective wherein God has replaced the Jews flies in the face of that one word forever. Because God has made a forever covenant with Jews, which he will fulfill, Romans 11 says, and then, future, all Israel will be saved. Again, Satan read the Bible. If he can drive the Jews into the sea, uh, then he can show people, look at this God who made a forever promise to Israel, broke it to them. What makes you think he won't break his promise to you? Can you see what's at stake here? I hope you don't succumb to the uh, theology picking up steam, especially amongst young people today, uh, that God has replaced the Jews and they are not his area of interest anymore. Well, how do you explain the 144,000 from each of the tribes of Israel unless you explain it away. See, it doesn't look like God is finished with the Jews. In fact, he uses the word forever, and that's why Satan wants to finish off the Jews. Once again, God makes a forever problem, uh, a promise. If Satan can interfere and wipe out the Jews, he makes God out to be a liar. And then what right do you have to believe his word to you? Can you see what's at, what's at stake? Now, verse 25, now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken. You know what David's doing? Another element of prayer. He's simply asking God to do what he said. I think God loves that. He's telling him, oh, God, you promised certain things. Please do it. So you can find promises in the Bible 
and pray them back to God. However, you have to make sure you're not misapplying the promises in the Bible, which we are prone to do. So I want to offer two, I hope, helpful ways to lessen the probability of us misapplying a promise in the Bible. So here's my first suggestion. The principles of God are different than the promises of God. Let me illustrate. The book of Proverbs has themes, one of which is do good and you will feel good. That is not a promise. It's a principle. How do I know that? I know many good Christians who are doing good but are not feeling good. I know some who've just lost a son. Therefore, can we say God has broken his promise? No, because Proverbs is not meant to be a book of precise scientific promising. It's a proverb. A proverb is a statement of general truth. For instance, someone says to you, how's the weather in Houston? You say it is hot and humid all the time. But no, that's a proverbial expression. It's not today. This is the one day of the year when it's not. (laughs) hot. So you see, that's not meant to be a precise scientific statement. So you have to distinguish between biblical principles and biblical promises, lest you feel God has not kept his word. And a second, I think maybe helpful suggestion that could keep us from misapplying God's promises, it's this, a careful examination of the context will keep us from misapplying a promise found in the Bible. Folks, sometimes a promise in the Bible is a promise not given to you or me. It's a promise with specific application to a specific person at a specific time. For instance, in the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, God promised land. I can't go there and say, ah, so too you have promised me land some kind of confirmation that God's going to give me real estate. No, if I do my homework and examine the context, I find out it's to Abraham and his descendants in a context that doesn't specifically apply to me at all. Let me bring this home. Uh, Perhaps you know of this verse, Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, an oft misapplied promise. Here's what it says. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. So people will come up to you and say, will you enter into agreement with me about this petition I'm uttering to God? I want to, I don't know, get that job. Can you enter into agreement with me so the two of us in agreement can pray? And thus, according to Matthew 18, verse 19, that will obligate God to give us what we agree about. Folks, just on the basis, forget about good theology, just good common sense. Does that sound right? Do you have to gang up on? Are your prayers so unimportant, your singular prayers so unimportant to God that you've got to get someone else to team up? God won't hear from you alone. You've got to get a partner in order to obligate God. God, it's not just me. There's two of us asking for this. (laughs) Come on, folks. 
But beyond that, context of Matthew 18, you may be surprised to know, has to do with church discipline. You know what God is saying? I give authority to the duly appointed leaders of a local church to exercise church discipline in the case of an unruly or sinful church member. Do not do this alone. If two of you agree on the application of church discipline, I from heaven delegate my authority to you and what you decide and ask for in that regard, I will confirm and authorize. That is entirely different than taking this as a blanket promise. So here's, here's what I, I want to suggest. Instead of going on a promise-searching venture in the Bible, finding something you like so that you can write it out and tack it on your refrigerator or make a sweatshirt out of it or something like that, please do your homework. Read the context to see about applying it rightly. This is why I have an intense dislike for these little book of Bible promises that you can get. Now, I know I'm stepping on toes right over here, but let me just remind you, it's not the first time. I'll tell you why I don't like those. They're collections of promises extracted from the Bible at random without paying attention to the context. And so some here are feeling let down by God because in your little promise book it says such and such, but it isn't God who actually perhaps ever promised that to you. The context uh, indicates it has a specificity, a specific time, person, and people group, and you're not part of it. A better approach is simply to read the Bible on your own. It takes a little more work. Don't take the lazy person's approach of buying one of these promises books. Why not read the Bible your father wrote, gave to us, sit at his feet, read it chapter in its entirety before you extract as in the case of Matthew 18 verse 19 one verse that has nothing whatsoever to do with what you may think it has to do okay enough of that verse 26 that your name may be magnified forever that is the goal of prayer to ask God regardless of the outcome to be magnified or glorified Now, David here tells us how specifically he thinks God will be magnified. Look, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David be established before you. Now, once again, it's not me inserting anything into the text. You know what God is saying? Oh, God, I want you to be magnified. And you know how he's saying God will be? By saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. God's name will be glorified, magnified, when people see how God has in fact one day fulfilled all of his promises to Israel in spite of Israel. Now there's a whole movement of people who believe the church is spiritual issue. In fact, I'll hear from wonderful Gentile Christians who say, I am a spiritual Jew. What in the heck are you talking? I said heck, but I came close. To- <laughs> so you know what I'm saying. Uh, what are you talking about? 
There's no need for you to be a spiritual or any other kind of Jew. You, you are not a second-class citizen. You're a son or daughter of God by faith. I don't have any edge on you whatsoever. He'd made both groups to be one new man through the cross of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean he blurred the distinction, the ethnic distinction between Jews and Gentiles. So this whole notion, the church is spiritual Israel. I know there's a verse of scripture that talks about the Israel of God in Galatians. Send me one time and I'll tell you that has nothing to do with the church. The Israel of God are... Jews who believe in Jesus the Messiah, the sent one of God. That's the Israel. But anyway, that's a subject for a different day. I just want to tell you something. When you say God is finished with the Jews, the church is replaced the Jews, God no longer has a plan for the Jews, you are robbing God of glory and the magnification of his name, not according to Rothberg, but according to David, that your name may be magnified forever by saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. God gets glory when we see his faithfulness in the face of Israel's failures. That's how God gets glory. Now, as we come to a close, look verse 27 and on. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I'll build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. You know what David did? <laughs> he prayed back to God his word. There's power in praying God's word back to him. David is summoning up the boldness to say, Oh God, you promised a house, a dynasty. I'm praying to let it be according to your word. He prayed scripture in context and intelligently and I think Almighty God is pleased to be held to his word. Oh, God, you have said. Therefore, let it be done according to what you have said. Okay, so we have seen some good prayer principles in David's model of prayer. I hope it's beneficial to you. I have to hurry up and end because can you just turn around just for a second? Those are mean people. On the other side, they can't hear us now. I'm just sharing this with you. It's in private. They're not like you. They're very vicious. Please pray for me in the next hour. God bless you folks. See you next time.